today's readings are from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. It's the first one. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. Just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. When they went and found a colt outside in the street, they tied it at a door, doorway. As they untied it, some of the people standing there asked, why are you doing, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered, as Jesus has told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Next reading is from Mark 14, verses 32 to 42. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? You couldn't keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning a third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes the betrayer. Alrighty, let's see how we go today. We're going to try and do uh, this last week of Jesus. And uh, I hope the goal for you today, the goal for us all, is to really see one thread of the many wonderful threads in Mark 11 and 16 of how magnificent it is that Jesus is uh, the ransom for many. We're going to see uh, what he's done, how he's done it, in a few of the moments. But as I spent this week trying to think it through, how to go about it, what became abundantly clear to me is these last chapters deserve falling apart bit by bit. As I've already, if you're wondering, what about that bit, what about that bit, I'd love you to write down questions and ask, but I've already plugged in down the track, uh, maybe late next year or something like that, we will just build it in 16 in depth, the, the riches that are in there. Let me pray, and we'll 
put into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you in your word we see Jesus. Help us be challenged by what he's done on the cross today. In his name we pray. Well, the time has come. Whether you like it or not, you don't have a choice. Unless you're under 18. Next Saturday, you're voting. You're aware of that? It's happening. You're probably aware of it because it's been eight weeks of an election campaign. That is a long time. And whether you're super passionate about it or whether you're ambivalent because you're so frustrated with governments, you don't get a choice. You need to decide and make a decision on who you're going to vote for. Even if your decision is to make a donkey vote. But today, as we start looking at this last week, it starts with a donkey. It starts with a donkey and it's very strange. You see on your outline there for this week, the outline is right, not our service order because we changed it all around, but the outline is right. We've got four parts. I'm going to do the first parts now and then we'll do um, the last two parts uh, later. And the first one is, we see there's a donkey involved in the coming of Jesus to Jerusalem. And what we see by this, on the screen there, God comes with judgment and salvation. You see, the final week has come, and Mark has been preparing us for it. It's what we've been doing ever since we started journeying through Mark's Gospel. The first eight chapters, who is Jesus? And time and time again, we're confronted with him being pointed to. He's the chosen Messiah. He has all the power and authority to do it. He's showing us he's that, that Christ because... He's done all these miracles which point to that one. He has power to uh, authority over demons. He has shown that he is the one they've been waiting for. We saw over the, the, the last few weeks before that as Peter helpfully uh, walked us through a few chapters in chapter 8 and, and last week as we, as we got to chapter 10 and we saw that verse we looked at with the kids. How he's going to bring in this kingdom that he's promised to bring in as the Messiah is going to be as a ransom for many. He is going to suffer, die, and rise again. And in those chapters, three times get over and over, suffer, die, and rise. And each time the, the followers are like, hmm, don't get it. Even if they think they do, they didn't. Fear seems to be the response. And what we've seen time and time again, compared to every other kingdom, every other domain and rule, this kingdom is upside down. It's upside down. People take kingdoms with their power, with their money, with their armies. They take them, and yet this kingdom is coming as one who is going to serve, who is going to die. And we've talked about it's upside down. That's 1045 is. How could this possibly be the way the kingdom, God's kingdom, is going to come? We're going to see that. And we see it starts with Jesus coming on a donkey. If you've got your Bibles open, look at verse 4 to 11. They went and found a colt outside in, in the street, tied it at a doorway as they untied it. Some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered, and Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. 
Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest heaven! Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany as well. The upside-down kingdom is brought in by Jesus coming in an upside-down way on a donkey. And the crowds are on the Jesus bandwagon at this point, aren't they? Hosanna! But they're not for long. As they're stirred to sing out very loudly, crucify him! But now the long-awaited king has come to where the only place is that you can come to take the kingdom of Israel at Jerusalem. And here he comes into this place. But Jesus' arrival and the people's response signals something more significant when we see the Old Testament allusions to Zechariah chapter 9. Which, by the way, if you want to actually see the depth of everything that's been going on in Mark's Gospels, and these are last chapters, it becomes clearer and clearer the more time you spend in the Old Testament allusions. But verse, uh, verse 9 of Zechariah is up on the screen, and that verse is in the context of a passage which is all about judgment to the nations, and that salvation is amongst it. And it's in that context we find Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is why he came on a donkey. He is the king coming. And he comes with judgment and salvation. He comes bringing righteous victory. The king brings everything that is needed. Then Jesus goes on to do something a bit strange. Did you notice that in verse 11, how it's just a little bit odd? Is it there? He goes into Jerusalem. He goes into the temple. Where the action is at? This is how people had some kind of relationship with God, some access to him through the priests and the sacrificial system. He goes in, has a bit of a sticky beak around, and he goes, oh, it's getting a bit late. I'm going to head on. A little bit strange. If we had time, we'd go into the depth of what's actually going on there as judgment was referred to in Zechariah 9, in which he's bringing the allusions to, Jesus has had a look in and seen where the people are supposed to be preparing to meet God. It's a den of robbers. Verse 17, a bit further on, he says that. He says them, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so there's this whole great story about a fig tree, and now that's confusing, but really great, and pointing towards this judgment that he is bringing. That's for another time. But here we see either you're part of the king who comes on a donkey, or you are not. And the one who decides is the one who is right. The time has come to go to his death. He's arrived at Jerusalem. 
But before he does, he has one final supper with his 12 close friends. He explains it further about what's to happen, something that we go on to commemorate. Throughout the centuries, Christians come together and remember Jesus talking about his death and resurrection. And that's where the betrayer is identified. And then after that, he heads to the garden, our second stop. And in the garden, what do we discover? Jesus knows what is coming. And we see there is no other way to God. There are not many more important words in the Bible than when Jesus prays. Out of all of the prayers in the Bible, the most important and significant is Jesus' prayer here for us. There is so much to learn about God and how we relate to him and who he is. It teaches us about the Trinity. It teaches us about submission. It teaches us about the sovereignty of God, about prayer, about love and about sacrifice. Today we are going to see that it teaches us Jesus knows what he's about to face. Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen to him. And it's tearing him Look at verse 34. He says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the spoken in chapter uh, 14. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. My soul is overwhelmed to the point of sorrow. Uh, with sorrow to the point of death, sorry. You see, sometimes, uh, before we're in the thick of something, we, have, we thought we knew what it was about, but we had no idea the depth of or no understanding of what was going on. I knew what marriage was all about before I was married. It was easy. It was going to be easy. Jen and I were going to have no problems about that. Well, I was a fool. <laughs> I'm going through it right now. I'm going through it right now. We've been, we've been blessed uh, to have an opportunity to buy a house, which some, some of you know, and, and it's a great thing, and we're really looking forward to having everybody come at the house, but... Uh, we, we want everyone to be able to be a part of it and, and to come and uh, we'll have an area where we, we're hopefully going to be able to turn into kind of a ministry centre area for the church. It's going to be great. I thought you know what you do. You get your money, you save up, you have enough money for a deposit and then you put it in, you tell the bank and then all you go and it's done. Great, excellent, no dramas. Oh my goodness. There's contracts, there's signatures, there's initials, there's conveyances. Now I've got to confess, I didn't really know what a conveyance was. I did. Have to look it up. And there's all these things that goes on and on. I know some of you are thinking, mine, mine. There's so many things. I had to ask many people help. And there are many great people here and family. It was kind of strange. I had no idea. But I thought I did. Jesus has every idea before he gets to the cross about what he's about to face. Every idea. And so he said, I am overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He understands it. You see what he asked for in the prayer? Take this cup from me. The cup is not just kind of a metaphorical drink. It's the metaphorical drink of God's wrath. All of God's wrath. For all that has been done wrong to him. It's an Old Testament uh, way of describing God's wrath. In Jeremiah 25, there's a great passage of 15 and following in which we see this wrath, this cup of wrath. 
he knew what he was about to do. He knows that he is the suffering servant of Isaiah. I want you to open up your Bibles if you've got them in front of you and get to Isaiah. I'll give you a chance to get there. But I think this is how we see what Jesus knew he was facing. I don't know whether Isaiah 53 is familiar to you, but from this point on, I want to suggest to you make it one of those familiar chapters that you never forget. Because here we see a suffering servant, and Jesus sees this is him. Let me read it. And as I'm reading it, see, this is what Jesus knows he's about to face. I'll start from verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man is suffering and familiar with pain. Like one whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter. Verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. Do you see that's what Jesus knew he was about to face? Because of our iniquity, he is pierced, he is abandoned, he is crushed, he is despised. Because of humanity's wickedness. It is all on him. The burden of all of humanity's wickedness. Now stop. Go back to the garden. And see, this rock is weighing on him. He doesn't want to face it with the most perfect of prayers by a perfect son to a perfect father. He says in verse 36, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. He knows God the Father can, but he still wants what the Father wants. Wow. And with these words we see this must be the only way to God. The Father knows it's the only way. The Son knows it's the only way. Who else can take the cup of wrath? Only God can can deal with it. And it's humanity. You see, if Jesus is just a way amongst many ways of being a good person, of choosing any religion, of choosing any ideology that you want to get to the end, did God really need to put his son through Isaiah 53? If there were other ways? This prayer shows us there is no other way. There is no other name by which we get to God. There is no other name that we can be saved by. And that's what the garden teaches us. And that's what we are going to remember now as we conclude our first section by standing and singing boldly, no other name.
Well, now we're at the cross. We're at the cross, where it all happens, where the kingdom comes. Jesus is arrested. He's disowned by all, even Peter. Pilate, the selfish coward, hands him over. As the crowds are no longer crying out, Hosanna, but crucify him, and he's sent with the cross. And as he's crucified, insults are being heaped on him. And then at noon, darkness falls, and we read verse 34. Eloi, Eloi, lama which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a question. But it's a question Jesus knows the answer to. It's not, as some would say, shows that Jesus, in the end, doesn't understand. He knows he's been forsaken by the Father. This is no kind of playground here for, you know, as kids, um, or you may remember your childhood and have bitter moments where friends ignored you, gave you the cold shoulder. I, 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 it happened to me once. It's not like that. This is abandonment. Completely and utterly abandoned by God. It's a mystery of mysteries in some ways in which we don't fully understand and that makes sense to us as humans and not God. But the sting of being deserted, we might know and have a glimpse of understanding is pain. Being deserted or abandoned, sometimes not by anyone's fault, but being forsaken, away from, deserted by, is pain. Death makes that clear to us. And it hurts. Especially love and we don't expect it. When friends reject us and no longer are confidence, when they used to be the person we tell everything to. Children who want nothing to do with us, sometimes what we thought was going to be a lifelong relationship, painfully ends in divorce. A boss who betrays you, who abandons you and tells you you're going to take for the fault for this, even though it's my fault. The sting of being deserted, we might know, we might cut. Everyone has abandoned Jesus. There's a couple looking on in tears. The crowds, the leaders. tragic story which becomes a triumph in the end of Peter disowning him, Judas, the betrayer, the soldiers of Pilate, at his nose of the cross, facing the insults of those who deserve to be there, even God the Father, forsaken. And we should know this is what we He is facing the cup of wrath. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it's your will for our people. As 
is abandoned by God, what will happen? What's it mean? Right, as he's crying, verse 37 with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. You understand this further as I've alluded to it. As much as I'd love to go into the depth of it, Jesus is saying those words to tell us what I'm going through is what's happening in David's psalm, Psalm 22, when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You want to understand the cry of Jesus further today. Go home and read Psalm 22 and wrestle with this abandonment. And as soon as he dies, access to God Right then, the final barrier of barriers with beautiful symbolism is no longer needed. Verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And that's when the centurion in verse 39, who was standing there looking at Jesus, seeing him, says, Sure, this man was the Son of God. You see, this picture of a curtain is the inner sanctum of the inner sanctum of the Holy of Holies where God's people only kind of have access to God but it kind of points to the fact that they don't. But there's this temple in which there's layers upon layers of people who can access where God really is right in there. Forget the Gentiles, they're way out and if they go any further in, they're going to die. And then some Jews can get further in, and then the priest, and then there's one priest who goes in, and it's so sacred, and so much access is not granted that you can only go in once, and just in case like, he dies, we'll put a rope on his leg so we can pull him down, because we're not going in there because we don't have that access. With great symbolism, the one who is forsaken by God, who has died for us, that whole system is the shadow that is no longer needed. And so the temple is turning to, God who is at the centre is now available to everyone because of what Jesus has done. This is what Paul, the Apostle, knew in, in 2 Corinthians 5, our, our kind of our chapter at Crow, that we've started off with, that we keep coming back to, and right at the end of that chapter, in chapter 5, verse 21, it's on the screen there, God made him who had no sin. He was perfect. Always knew what the Father was. To be sin for us. God put our sin on Jesus. So that access is free. There is no system needed, there's no temple, there's no curtain, there's nothing needed because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we would be the righteousness become the righteousness of God. This is what's happening at the cross. The ransom for many, this is what's taking place. And so, at the cross, the Son of God places God's wrath, His abandonment, to give access to all. This is what we all need. And the flip side to it, which is really confronting, is that if it's not on Jesus, who is it going to be on? It will be on you. But there is one final piece to this drama to unfold. 
Jesus cannot bring in a kingdom. The whole point of his coming is in the grave. What king rules six foot under? So there's a tomb. Rather, there's an empty tomb. That's what Roman just read for us. In Mark's Gospel, there's some, and you have probably seen your Bibles, it goes on beyond verse 8, um, but uh, I want to suggest to you, we can talk about it another time, and certainly when we go back to it, I think Mark actually finished it at verse 8. And, and, and some scribes just tried to helpfully sum it up, what happened. But I think Mark has purposely ended it there for us. Let me show you why. You see, in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 16, Jesus has conquered the grave, but the story ends in fear instead of going. You see, at the end there, in verse 7, go tell his disciples and Peter, this this one who was standing there says, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. Ah, if we um, flicked back and we we saw um, earlier in chapter 14, verse 28, at the um, Last Supper, Jesus actually said, I will see you again in Galilee. And so he said, go to Galilee, there you will see him, just as he said. How does the gospel end? They're going to go to Galilee, they're going to see Jesus, it's going to be the king is here, hallelujah, Hosanna, actually. Verse 8, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. It ends in fear. It's kind of a big theme of my gospel, isn't it? It's a strange but brilliant ending. See, the point, I think, of what Mark is doing, he's dragging us into the story, us into the gospel. Who is Jesus for you? Are you going to follow him or are you going to be bewildered, trembling, fearful of it, not going to go? The promise, has it actually come? Way back when we started, very clearly, chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, it's all about the kingdom of God coming. And you receive that through repentance and belief. All that is left now is the fulfillment. He has done it. And it's over to you. Are you part of this story? Are you unhappy with how it's ended? Because I am. I don't want it to end like that. And we know as we read the gospel that it doesn't end like that. That even Peter is devastated by his denial of Jesus. By the power of the Spirit in Acts we see proclaimed Jesus died and crucified with the others. And the church starts and here we are today in a country that wasn't even a thought or a hint of an idea on the other side of the world proclaiming this same Jesus. The time has come. We cannot wait any longer. You're going to have to vote on Saturday, but if you don't do that, you might get a fine and be bad. But the time has come that you cannot wait any longer for to decide, do you want, even with no sin, to be sin for you? Or are you going to decide to continue to carry it on yourself? As we finish this series, I've had so much fun in seeing Mark's Gospel delight in seeing Jesus at the forefront and centre of our new church. One last time on the screen we say, is he worth following? This Jesus. Brothers and sisters, he is.
You know, there's a story we missed with Pilate. It's like this historical illustration just to remind us how much it is worth for us following him. Pilate, scared of everyone, the coward that he was, thought, I know what I'll do. I'll put Jesus over here and I'll get Barabbas, a murderer, an insurrectionist, over here and I'll ask the people, I'll say, who do you want me to let go? Because that was the tradition they had. Who do you want me to let go? The guilty Barabbas. He is guilty. He's a murderer. Or this king of the Jews who's done nothing wrong that I can see. And that's when the people are stirred up to cry out, crucify him. Pilate lets the wrong one, the one who is who is done wrong, go free. We are Barabbas. We are Barabbas. Jesus was his substitute, as he is the substitute for all of us. Do you want to take what Jesus has done for you? Or do you want to base it yourself? That is the challenge that we have seen through our whole journey of Mark's Gospel. Brothers and sisters, repent and believe. The kingdom 